And I think this is something that we can learn from the anti-corruption side of things. We also need to recruit strategically partners and key stakeholders in order to make an anti-corruption more attractive. Hello and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. There are a growing group of scholars applying a social norms-based approach to understanding and addressing corruption issues. In this episode, Claudia Baez Camargo, Head of Public Governance at the Bars Institute and one of the leading thinkers in this space, speaks to Liz Davra Barrett about lessons from her work. The podcast takes an examples of applied research on social norms in East Africa and Ukraine, also of interest to researchers will be the discussion of Claudia's work on analysing corruption as a networked phenomenon and what this means for how we can rethink approaches to anti-corruption. We hope you enjoyed the episode and thank you for listening. I'm delighted to be joined today by Claudia Baez Camargo from the Basel Institute, who's going to be talking to us about her research on social norms and corruption. Hi, Claudia. Hi, Liz. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. Great. Well, we're really excited to have you. And I wondered if you could start by just telling us how you got interested in corruption. Sure. So, Since I was very young, I was interested in development topics, especially I was really keen on growing up and finding ways to fight poverty, extreme poverty. And somehow, I I suppose I knew that corruption was important, but in those early days, it was really not at the top of the list. And maybe I should say, you know, I, I was born and raised in Mexico City, and in such a context you are exposed to corruption from very early on, you know, whether it's because you see people around you actually bribing or something like this, but also the narrative is all around you. You hear grown-ups speaking about how you need to give money to the traffic cop. There are all these popular culture sayings that allude to corruption. So it's everywhere. So you just grow exposed to it. But then at the same time, of course, you have you know, what you're taught in the class at school, all the civic education about how things should be, the law, and, but then you know how things happen in real life. So mm-hmm. in a way you are, you are in, in, in this kind of context, you grow up being socialized with this ambivalence. It's just natural and you don't necessarily see a contradiction in your mind. Mm-hmm. So it was not until many years after I had left Mexico to study abroad and now with an academic lens, that uh, the centrality of this internalized contradiction, I came to realize that this was an important thing to think about. That's why when I started working at the the Basel Institute, I really wanted to explore not so much the formal, you know, what are the laws and the formal rules, but rather the informal and more intangible aspects that give rise to corruption. Yeah, and that's what I find so interesting about your work is that you're actually one of still fairly few academics who have really said, look, it's important to think about these social norms and how they might be fostering corruption or just interfering with our efforts to counter corruption. So rather than you know, a lot of 
what we collectively do in anti-corruption sort of assumes that it's enough to introduce laws and have good enforcement and it's all this very much sort of rational choice kind of approach to things it's all about just better information and better laws you're always saying actually we've really got to understand that social norm context so I wondered could you explain to our listeners what you see as the key principles of that approach I mean what are social norms Mm -hmm. Sure. So social norms are unwritten rules about what individuals believe that the majority of people in their communities or in a particular group are doing and about what this majority of people consider to be acceptable behavior. Uh So So, there's two things there, what they're doing mm -hmm. and what they think is acceptable. Exactly. So, so, So from an academic point of view, we're talking about the descriptive norms and injunctive norms. And so why does that matter then? In what ways do they fuel corruption? So on our research, we found that social norms can be closely linked to corruption through different channels. So for a very common one, uh, which has to do with a descriptive norm, is some version of a belief that everybody's doing it, that everybody is corrupt. So everybody bribes traffic police, or you always have to have a personal connection to get a public contract, Mm -hmm. or you can never get a public service without a bribe, etc. And then there's another version which links to the injunctive norm, which is the belief that it's not just that everybody's doing it, but everybody's accepting and actually endorsing corruption. But furthermore, and this is quite important, there's a belief that there will be some kind of social punishment from deviating from this rule. So, for example, if I don't drive at the traffic bureau and I fail my driving exam, I will be made fun of actual punishment for not being corrupt or not doing the corrupt thing, but punishment from the community. Sorry, you were going to say another example. Yeah, no, no. Recently, I was I was involved in a project in Albania. And there I heard a testimonial that I found really chilling of a person talking about how the family of a COVID patient who passed away the family was ruthlessly accusing and shaming the individual that was accompanying the deceased to the health facility because they suspected that he hadn't bribed enough to get this uh-huh. person the treatment that would have saved his life. Mm-hmm. So, so it can be really, really, you know, go to, to extremes. Right. Fascinating. Yeah. So then how can we then use these social norms to to turn things around for good and to use them for sort of anti-corruption purposes? Yeah, this is a nice thing that there are actually actually actionable implications of this research. So maybe to, to, to begin with, I think it's important to differentiate between personal beliefs, the social norm and the actual behaviors. And what's interesting is that the social norms may be in conflict or even contradict the personal belief. So I might be 100% against corruption. I don't want to bribe. But if I feel that everybody around me is doing it, then I'll do it anyway, even if it goes against my conviction. You know, the fact that people might be acting against their preferences is also an opportunity where we can intervene, where such mismatch Uh I see. So you're kind of taking advantage of the fact that they're already a little bit unhappy. They see this kind of cognitive dissonance that they're having to deal with. And so that's the point at which you can intervene. Exactly. Example, it's possible to reveal the real norm. It's really quite interesting when one looks at surveys on attitudes toward corruption, etc. Globally, you, you see across the board people 
are against corruption. Nobody likes corruption. But then at the same time, a lot of people in very corrupt, corrupt contexts believe everybody else lies corruption. So, so here is an opportunity to intervene. And there are some very interesting studies. For example, Matthias Agarberg worked in Mexico precisely Mexico, uh, where everybody believes everybody else is corrupt. And, 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 and based on the findings of a survey, which actually indicated the opposite, made this explicit, like, like, you know, actually, those around you are as against corruption as you are. And this actually had some positive effects on some uh, attitudes and intentions subsequently. So, so th there's interesting things that can be done. That's interesting. So basically people, they have a kind of veil lifted and they see that everyone around them maybe feels the same as them, even so you couldn't detect that from the behavior, maybe because everyone's kind of behaving corruptly, but actually everyone's feeling unhappy about that underneath. Yeah, exactly. So to give you another example, in my team, we have researched about social norms and corruption in East Africa quite extensively. And an example of what we found is that norms of reciprocity fuel bribery. So we looked in detail at the health sector, for example, and we found out that giving a gift at the health facility, which a gift is, of course, a euphemism for a bribe, this act is not just a one-off to get what you need at this precise moment, but it's a way to create a relationship with a health worker. So this, you know, I give you a gift and in this way I'm befriending you. And because friends are have this norm of reciprocity, this obligation to reciprocate, this means that you have taken my gift, you, you're giving me some kind of special treatment, but this is ongoing. This goes into the future. So the next time I'm going to come to the health facility, I'm going to ring you up and say, hey, I'm coming. Please uh -huh. help me jump the queue, for example. L like I was saying, the nice thing is that uh, we find that this kind of social norm phenomena are actionable. And, and, and in my team, we had a nice project funded by the Global Integrity Anti-Corruption Evidence Program, where we designed and piloted an intervention that sought to change the perception of the social norm of giving a gift in health facilities in Tanzania. Mm -hmm. Going into health centers, normally mm -hmm. they feel that they need to give a gift. When do they give the gift? Do they give it before they get treatment or afterwards or... This is very interesting. So before, you know, we, we were working in the Tanzanian context and, um, and we've been doing research in Tanzania for a very long time. So we're capturing that uh, bribery used to be rampant in health facilities. So sometimes even the, the, the guard at the gate would um, solicit a bribe in order to let people in. So it was really quite all over the place. And then came John Magufuli, who was the president of Tanzania for a few years and had a very, very strong anti-corruption top-down intent. And things changed. And this is an, exact, uh, an interesting example of how corruption can morph in that, where, whereas before we saw that uh, health workers were extorting bribes in order to give treatment to begin with, mm -hmm. post-Magofuli, the bribe merged into a gift. So it, now it happens after the service is provided, but still the intention of creating a friendship with a health worker and getting this privileged treatment going forward, that remains. And it's, 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 it's you know, based on our research, it's, it's, of course, this is not written anywhere, but it's perfectly understood 
by all sides. So the fact that Magafuli was having this big clampdown made people more sensitive to being seen to give something that could be seen as a bribe. But actually, the sort of need for it and the the expectation of it was still there. So they just kind of changed into giving it in a way that it looked more like a gift. Exactly. So, so, so what we did, we, we, we tried on the one hand to address the descriptive norm of everybody thinking that everybody else had to, that everybody else was doing it by placing posters and desk signs that were advising the users that uh, gift giving is not acceptable in this health facility all over all over mm-hmm. the, the hospital where we worked. And then we tried to tackle the injunctive norm, the acceptability one, by working with a peer-led approach. So basically, we recruited champions mm-hmm. amongst the health staff. We trained them, we brought them on board, and the idea was that they would disseminate the message, the anti-gift receiving, in this case, messages mm-hmm. through their social networks, and that this in, in, in principle, we thought would be more powerful if you're receiving the message from your own peers, from people in your social network, whom you trust, that this would be more powerful than a more, if you want, antiseptic uh, mm-hmm. public awareness campaign or some random CSO coming to teach you about what's good and what's not good to do, mm-hmm. et, et cetera, et cetera. And um we had some nice results. We saw substantial re- reductions, up to 44% in indicators of gift-giving intentions and attitudes towards gift-giving among um, hospital users. Fantastic. Great. So a real... And do you know how long that lasts or you know, anything around durability of that? Well, I'm glad you asked that because, you know, what one of the things that I'm... I'm generally very interested in producing evidence of what works and what doesn't. I think that we need hard evidence, as hard as we can get, of course, but, you know, rigorously measured and and, and all of that. But I think that once we get a good result, I mean, this is only the beginning, because in, in our case, we have now a cohort of champions who are very motivated. They really loved that they were part of this intervention. But now we need to think, OK, so, so what else can we do in this particular facility to keep them engaged, to keep them motivated and to make, you know, and to institutionalize some mm-hmm. changes that can make the intervention impact durable? and sustainable. So that's one thing. But I also think that when we are running pilots, of course, we design them with great care. And some people would say we over-engineer them too much and we, we, we make sure things align so they are perfect so that we get the good result. But what happens when we scale up? So then what I'm trying to say is that if you find that you have an approach that seems promising, then it's really important to go into how do we scale it up? What are the minimum common denominator that we can use that can be effective in, in applying the same approach to other, in this case, to other health facilities? So we're hoping we're going to be able to do this um, in the near future. And, um, and the other thing is these pilots, one should be quite open and honest about it. They are expensive and and very time consuming. So I think that once you find an approach that seems to work, we need to milk the cow as much as we can Uh to to put it somehow. So so one of the things that we're also interested in doing is exploring how our approach can be tailored 
to address other types in, of corruption in other sectors and areas. Mm-hmm. Great. So looking at how much can this be generalized? Because I, you know, I absolutely take the point that because it works in one context, we don't know that it will work in others. But at the same time, I think the big promise of this is that you you have done an intervention which makes so much more sense in the context that it might well be longer lasting than you know something that is more externally imposed and yeah, as you said, antiseptic. So one of the things that you sort of touched upon a lot is in this community sort of aspect of corruption. And I know that another thing that you've looked at very much is how much corruption is sometimes not just a sort of individual transaction with another individual, but it's very much a whole uh, network that's engaging in the corruption. So could you tell us, you know, again, what you found in your research about that and, and what the significance of that is then for how we think about anti-corruption? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, it's been a very consistent finding across very research projects where we have been exploring informal elements linked to corruption, that corruption is really a network phenomenon and that informal networks are the vehicles by means of which acts of corruption are operationalized. And this applies for petty corruption, grant corruption, administrative corruption. It's really quite striking, in my opinion. And I think that recognizing this helps us explain the resilience of corruption, because we know that in many Mm -hmm. countries, it's not a problem of not having the right laws. You know, many Mm-hmm. Highly corrupt countries have good laws and corruption is still an issue. And actually, one has to think that most anti-corruption instruments actually are targeting individual incentives. And to be honest, for the most part, are designed to address corruption as a problem of individual rotten apples. So when we take the network, ne- uh, ne- when we take the network nature of corruption into account, things change dramatically because informal practices and collusive behaviors become enrooted and are perpetuated in a way that use your anti-corruption instruments to take out individuals. Even if you take the leader of the network out, the network lives on. I mean, we've seen right. this over and over again. So, mm-hmm. so one of the things we've done, we had another GIA-funded pro- project where we looked at informal networks and corruption. And there we mapped 10 mini case studies of such informal networks and their relationship to corruption. And um, In what and, kind and, of context? Uh, so these 10 case studies, where are they? What kind of sector or context? Okay, so, so these were in Tanzania and Uganda. Mm-hmm. And they were really quite varied. So, so basically, maybe it helps if I, if I tell you a little bit of what we found, because then you can understand the kind of networks that we unearthed. So we, we found that informal networks are a very effective means to achieve particular goals. Goals that people pursue through, their go- through the networks can be, for example, is access to public services. And this is important because often obtaining services such as getting a driver's license or a land deed or whatever can be really, really cumbersome, time consuming, etc. So you, you build a network in the sense that there are often brokers. This was one of our case studies. There are brokers who link up the people inside the public institution with the users who want the, the expedited access. So this can be getting a driver's license. This can be uh, help with a tax registration, mm-hmm. you name it. 
Another goal of building networks is to obtain business opportunities with the public sector. So this often has to do with building instrumentally networks that are aimed at derailing competitive public, public mm-hmm. procurement processes or other types of fraud in order to get the business. Needless to say, informal networks also help to win elections and stay in power, which, uh, uh, as we all know, and I'm, I, I know your audience in this podcast will be very knowledgeable about the importance of political campaign financing, especially mm-hmm. the intransparent type, in really fueling high-level corruption. So these are all informal networks, and they are all very instrumental, goal-oriented, and they are, of course, very effective in carrying out corrupt deals or transactions. So once you understand these networks, then what are the implications of that for how you fight corruption? I mean, I, I think it's really important to keep this this instrumentality very much in mind because, for example, one of the things that we learn about the informal networks is that if you're going to, let, let, let's stay with the public procurement example. And, and, and many of these countries, Uganda and Tanzania included, have quite sophisticated institutional mechanisms to control and prevent corruption. And what we found is that this, this, are all, this can all be derailed if you strategically co-opt all the people who are in those locations who, who need to control, to monitor, and mm-hmm. to give the award. You know, so, so to carry out a corrupt deal in this kind of scheme, you need to strategically recruit the right people to your network, the, those who can make things happen. And I think this is something that we can learn from the anti-corruption side of things. You know, we also need to recruit strategically partners and key stakeholders in order to, to get, make an anti-corruption easier, to make it also more attractive. Because I think that, you know, a, a lot of people, be them citizens or business, or they engage in corruption not because they want to, because, but because they feel this is the way where they can solve a problem or, or meet their needs. Mm-hmm. So we need to make anti-corruption functional as well. And this includes building trust among people who may not necessarily be trusting each other already. So this is also a call for collective action initiatives to go out of their way to recruit outside of their comfort zone. Because often, you know, we see collective action initiatives being populated by lots of like-minded people Mm -hmm. who are all in agreement of what needs to happen. But, you know, then what? Mm. So, So one needs to strategically recruit in this way. So that's about sort of building coalitions. Maybe they've got different partners in the coalition have different reasons for supporting the goal, but actually they've all got an interest in the goal of fighting corruption or reducing this particular kind of knot that everyone is having to deal with to, to which they're using corruption to get around. Yeah. Let me give you an example, which I really like. Uh, this is the example of the business ombudsman of Ukraine, which which is or I hopefully it will still uh, remain uh, a very valuable asset for private sector actors in Ukraine, because it is a resource where very highly trained lawyers and and, and legal experts and uh, advocates 
private sector actors who are having corruption problems, who are being maybe asked for a bribe or in any way extorted, rather than giving in because they feel they have no choice, they can come to the business ombudsman. They have an alternative solution. It's free. It's effective because, you know, there's been a strategic recruitment of very prominent and, and um, authoritative figures. Mm -hmm. So you give private sector actors a, an alternative that does not involve corruption and solves their problem. And I think the problem solving is a really, really key part of the story, because especially with business actors, I think that a purely normative approach to anti-corruption is very problematic. So we need to mm -hmm. focus on how do we solve problems that give rise to given into bribery, etc., in a way that doesn't go in this direction, but in a different direction that is more transparent, et cetera, et cetera. And anti-corruption needs to deliver, deliver on those problems that people are facing. So it shouldn't yeah. be about yeah, just saying this is the right thing to do and moralizing, but it should be about solving problems. Exactly. Great. So one more thing I wanted to ask you about is some of your um, recent work that I've seen. You've been talking about the empathy gap and hot and cold states. So tell us about that. How does that play into corruption? Yeah, so this is part of a broader intention or wish to bring behavioral insights to help enhance the effect effectiveness of anti-corruption approaches. And so this thing about the empathy gap, it's, it's one of those findings from behavioral science that suggests that when we are in a so-called cold state of mind, when we're we're tranquil, we're not upset, you know, we're, we can't think rationally, you, you know, we, we can make commitments and, and, and decisions that when we are in a so-called hot state, meaning tired, under pressure, under stress, we won't be able to follow through. And, you know, there are very simple examples and everybody who's been on a diet and trying to lose <laughs> weight and you know exactly what you have to eat and what you should avoid. And then if you're arriving home late, exhausted after a long day, and of course you'll eat the mm -hmm. cake slice. Not mm -hmm. even if you know, you know, you shouldn't, you do. Why is this relevant to corruption? Because I think precisely going back to the social norms side of things, like I was saying, with the, I think the Albania example is quite pertinent. These social pressures can be huge. Mm. So who can make a rational decision when you're confronted with such pressures? So in our Tanzania project, because we heard from health workers that they feel really quite pressured by users who come and proactively want to give gifts and it, it, because it's part of the culture, it's part of the hospitality, et cetera, et cetera. If they refuse a gift, then the, the user might throw a fit, may gossip, you know, about mm -hmm. the health worker with other mm -hmm. people. So, so they feel under a lot of stress. So one of the things that we wanted to do was to test the idea. Can we intervene in that moment where the person is under pressure and, and might be given in to the corrupt behavior and give these people tools and resources to help them cope. So what we did, we created this desk signs, which on the side of the user, it was simply a anti-gift-giving message. But on the side of the provider, we, pro we, we gave them four easy steps. And we even, you know, like uh, wrote out the, the script 
of what uh-huh. they could say to tactfully reject a gift. So in mm-hmm. that sense, they didn't even have to think about it. They just could just read out loud what, what they had in front of them. So I think this is a, a, an idea that we would like to explore to try to make you know, compliance approaches like uh, codes of ethics trainings and that kind of things be more effective in considering, okay, so what kind of pressures will the people who are learning about the codes of ethics uh, be confronted with when push comes to shove? And, mm-hmm. and what kind of tools or resources can we give them to help them stay in a cold, rational state? Yeah, I think that sounds like a great idea because it, it's really socially awkward sometimes, I think, to say no to requests that you know are wrong. But by saying no, you're sort of implying something about the other person. You're maybe causing offence or you're putting yourself in a, a threatening situation. So, yeah, having these strategies and just sort of easy solutions that are to hand sounds like um, a good way of, of coping with that. So, Claudia, we always ask our guests do you think that young scholars should be working on? So from your vantage point, thinking about the whole landscape of corruption and anti-corruption research and interventions, what do you think should be the priorities for young scholars and practitioners? So I think that I would ask young people to study and think about how we can mobilize and best work with youth as agents of change. In many contexts, we're seeing quite worrisome patterns of state capture that are coupled with widespread citizen apathy. And most people, I think pretty much everybody, are happy to say, yes, we need to work with youth, we need to mobilize youth, youth are the future, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, no one can have an issue with that, right? (laughs) But I still Mm -hmm. have to see good approaches to do so, what works to actually energize and mobilize youth. Because, you know, I'm not talking about simply introducing anti-corruption curricula in schools, because like Mm -hmm. as I mentioned before, (laughs) in my Mexico example, this Mm -hmm. will have limited effect. I'm talking about how do we empower and encourage young people to exercise their agency? And, you know, this links to another topic that that really preoccupies me, that is, how how do we do anti-corruption in a way that is sustainable, that is effective, but stays within democratic means and Mm -hmm. democratic regimes? Because we see, or or we have seen some anti-corruption success stories that are actually, you know, the the implementation of anti-corruption reforms might have been done in a more or less authoritarian way. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously not what we want to encourage. So I, I think that it would be good to explore how youth can be energized as young citizens as young voters to 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 demand accountability from duty bearers and to use the instruments of democracy and the legal instruments that are there for citizen participation to actually achieve results. And I think that if by, through a learning by doing experience, this, you know, if when you're young, you realize that you actually joined the movement and something changed. I Mm -hmm. think this is the kind of experience that you take with you the rest of your life. And this can be really groundbreaking. Great. And so could really help to bring this kind of generational change 
Fantastic. That's an inspiring way to end. And it's been a really great chat. Thank you so much for joining us. I think really fascinating to hear about all of your research and can't wait to see what you work on next. Oh, thank you, Liz. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.